Is he back? Who? You know, the other guy. Who do you mean? The previous guy. Trump, is he back? No. Today's supposed to be the day. He's supposed to be back. He's supposed to be reinstated as president today. So, all right. Let me know if he comes back. Okay. At any time during the show, just break on in and tell me he's back, okay? Okay. Okay. Go ahead, start the music. I already did. Oh. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. I am a little scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluffing Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe for you every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing, Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. We hope it's thrilling anyway. Uh, <laughs> we hope it's not too thrilling anyway. Uh, so yeah, <clears throat> this. Um, hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Uh, this is uh, this is no longer a drill. Not that any of this ever was. Many folks uh, listening to me today are in sweltering parts of the country since there are so many of them today. Oh, yeah. Uh, but here is how Kasha Patel at Washington Post this afternoon describes the new announcement from NOAA late today. If you thought this July was just toasty, you probably didn't realize you were living through the hottest month in recorded history. That's right. On Friday, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration declared July 2021 to be the world's hottest month in 142 years of record keeping. That's since the 1880s when reliable record keeping began. Right. The uh, NOAA administrator, Rick Spinrad, said in a statement, in this case, the first place is the worst place to be on that list. He says this new record adds to the disturbing and disruptive path that climate change has set for the globe. Oh, you think? That news, of course, comes after a landmark report about climate science was issued by the United Nations on Monday, which we discussed with our guest, 
climatologist Michael Mann uh, shortly thereafter. You can download that interview. It's getting a lot of people uh, or have been downloading that interview. Yep. You can download it at brandblog.com. The uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report showed clear evidence on how humans have changed our climate, including with extreme heat events. The heat has not slowed down in August, the Post reports. Just this week, a weather station in Sicily appears to have recorded Europe's new all-time highest heat ever at 119.8 degrees Fahrenheit in Sicily. Greece, as you know, because we've been talking about all of this on our Green News reports and everywhere else for the last week or two, Greece has experienced another its own hot spell that resulted in scores of fires and evacuations by boat in the middle of the night from the uh, country's second largest island. And, of course, as we noted on our previous program, some 170 million Americans today, right now, are living under heat watches or warnings. All of that is the bad news, but the good news... We always have good news on the show, Desi Doyen. We do try. If, you know, if the broadcast is synonymous with anything... <laughs> It is good news. Uh, the good news is that Congress is on the brink now of actually doing something substantive about this disaster for the first time in ever. First time ever, I think. Uh, but it is likely their very last chance to do so for a decade or more if this does not get pulled off right now. The great David Roberts of Volts will be joining us here uh, momentarily to explain how Democrats need to get their stuff together right now. From uh, from the Joe Manchin wing uh, to the Bernie Sanders wing in the Senate, from the AOC wing to the take-your-pick wing, uh, conservative Democrats in the House, they got to get their stuff together right now to pass two key provisions of this $3.5 trillion reconciliation package that uh, David Roberts recently explained in his Volts newsletter is, quote, likely the last big shot at climate change policy for a decade or more, as he worries that, quote, it doesn't seem like clean energy supporters and climate hawks or the left more broadly really get that yet. And, and by the way, David's about as progressive as it gets. Oh, so, indeed. Uh, he, he certainly is. So I hope you will stay tuned uh, for this uh, conversation momentarily, because this is all on the line right now, as Democrats in both chambers of Congress now need to pull together on at least this part of the massive reconciliation package, or we will get nothing that even has a chance of staving off the worst impacts of our worsening climate emergency. And so stay tuned for that momentarily. Speaking of emergencies, we offered up an exclusive report on our previous broadcast on an emergency that I don't really think the national media ha has yet picked up on, much less really understood uh, to be the emergency that it may now be. We broke some news uh, that at that crazy My Pillow CEO guy, Mike Lindell's phony Stop the Steal so-called cyber symposium this week in South Dakota. Someone released what voting system and cybersecurity expert Harry Hursty told us, confirmed to us, was the actual Dominion voting system's 
system company's actual election management system software, the EMS software, released it into the wild and it was being downloaded by hundreds, if not thousands of folks right now, even as we speak. So it appears uh, to have been a series of copies of actual hard drives from the Mesa County, Colorado County Clerk's office, where the chief elected official there, the county clerk, Tina Peters, is a bit of a right-wing MAGA loon herself. A bit. Yeah. Yes, that's putting it generously. Yes, and and she is now being investigated by Colorado Secretary of State and law enforcement for a number of recent security breaches at her office. Well, this is amid a moment when Dominion's already known to be vulnerable touchscreen and paper ballot tabulators are being used in some 60% of the state of California right here, right now, for the gubernatorial recall election, in which early voting is underway now. So as I noted when we broke the news, I'm still speaking to experts and trying to determine what exact concerns uh, that are now present and what, if anything, can be done about them, whether here in California, where these systems are being used right now in this election or elsewhere in the country where these same systems will also be used in uh, in November, including, of course, the entire state of Georgia, where Dominion's unverifiable, vulnerable touchscreen systems are forced on all voters at the polling place. Uh, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition of Good Governance, a frequent guest on this program, uh, has been suing the Georgia Secretary of State to do away with at least the unverifiable touchscreen portion of Dominion's uh, uh, systems in the Peach State in favor of hand-marked paper ballots, which can, at least in the worst circumstance, they can be reliably hand counted so that the Dominion EMS, the emergency or the election management systems, uh, wouldn't even need be needed at all, essentially, to carry out, a, a, you know, a publicly overseeable, accurate, secure election. So here's what Marilyn had to say last night in a Twitter thread citing citing our report and regarding this release of the Dominion EMS software into the wild. She writes, Today, Fulton and DeKalb County uh, and DeKalb and likely other elections boards meet. Will they discuss this looming dark cloud over the November elections or hide their heads in sand and just trust the Secretary of State to deal with this danger to upcoming elections? And she notes there's new serious danger as of yesterday. Dominion's server with the entire election management system software for Mesa County, Colorado, was reportedly imaged and then released at the Lindell event in South Dakota yesterday, posted to the Internet. Thousands of people have copies, making the system extremely vulnerable to attack. It is urgent, she says, that counties and secretaries of state address this serious loss of control, making an already highly vulnerable ballot marking device system, the one used in Georgia, exponentially more vulnerable for all types of voting, including hand-marked paper ballots. Luckily, she notes, there are ready solutions. The solution, she says, is hand-marked paper ballots tabulated by scanner, but with robust post-election auditing of ballots in almost all contests. 
She says it is a simple solution that will foil any hacking or manipulation and no computer mysteries involved. So that was Marilyn Marks on this extraordinary leak uh, of these stolen hard drives. I also circle back to cybersecurity and voting system expert Rich DeMillo, founder of Georgia Tech's new School of Cybersecurity. He joined us just a few days ago before this latest major security breach to discuss the uh, expert's report that was ordered sealed by a federal judge in Atlanta. The report was by University of Michigan voting system expert Alex Halderman. He was allowed to study Georgia's Dominion systems amid this federal lawsuit. He wrote a report on vulnerabilities that he discovered when looking at Dominion systems that apparently were so alarming the judge ordered it sealed from everyone, plaintiffs and defendants alike, except for their attorneys only. Even Marilyn Marks, a plaintiff in that case, she is not allowed to look at that report which Holderman described in a separate declaration as a matter that the Georgia Secretary of State must, quote, urgently review because it shows, quote, that these uh, Dominion systems used in Georgia suffer from specific, highly exploitable vulnerabilities that allow attackers to change votes, unquote, in a way that the state mitigation techniques do not prevent. Of course, the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who is a defendant in the federal lawsuit, apparently he doesn't want to see the plaintiff's expert report that has been sealed for some reason. He has not made a motion to unseal it so that at least he, as the state's chief election official, can see it. I see nothing. I know nothing. Yes, he's going all Sergeant Schultz in me. Yes, he is. And by the way, so is Dominion themselves. They have not filed a motion. You would think they would want to know where their own systems are vulnerable. But maybe they don't because, you know, then they'd have to do something about it. But election officials in other states may actually have, I would argue, do actually have a keen interest in seeing this sealed report from this expert, the nation's foremost expert on voting systems, really. And now, more than ever, especially because Dominion's software has been released into the wild. It is kind of extraordinary that the mainstream media, the national media, has not yet picked up on this. But this is a huge story. So my conversation with Georgia Tech's Professor uh, DeMillo was actually before we learned about this new release of this software. So I circled back to get comment from him after this new security breach. He tells me that while he is, quote, still processing, unquote, what this uh, leak of stolen hard drives and, and software actually means, Just as I am still trying to process it, he says, quote, this news points to the urgency of unsealing the Halderman report on Dominion vulnerabilities for cybersecurity experts. The fact that the Dominion EMS images are now public increases the likelihood that the image cast voting software, that's the uh, the the touchscreens and so forth, the software used on on the actual touchscreen voting machines. He says it increases the likelihood that that software was also leaked. Maybe we just don't know about that yet. As I noted uh, previously, 
those touchscreen systems that they use in Georgia are the exact same touchscreen systems used in major California counties like San Diego and San Francisco and Riverside County in this critical gubernatorial recall election going on right now. The only antidote, says uh, Rich DeMillo, is to conform to standard industry practice and publish their vulnerabilities so that Dominion and their customers can take public steps to mitigate the risks to election infrastructure. In other words, the bad guys already know what the vulnerabilities are. Maybe election officials should know as well. As I say, so far I've seen almost zero coverage in national media or, or you know, any public action from election officials on this. Any alarm, whether in Georgia or here in California, even as the Colorado Secretary of State, Democrat Jenna Griswold, is reportedly taking security measures in Mesa County, uh, Colorado, in the county clerk's office there to, uh, to to lock that county clerk out of the office as they figure out what the hell is going on and how much it is now apparently going to cost to replace all of the machines in Mesa County that have been potentially breached here. The voting and the tabulation systems uh, in the county are all going to have to be replaced with new ones. What a mess, though it is one that we will continue to follow as best we can, uh, even if a uh, few others so far understand how potentially this could be a very big deal. As voting begins out here in the uh, California recall election, did I mention that 60 percent of the state of California uses Dominion systems? No big deal. OK, uh, speaking of antidotes to major infrastructure problems, <laughs> how's that, Desi Doyen? That's quite the segue. Thank you. David Roberts of Volts is here to explain, to, to beg, really, I think, to beg Democrats to come together on at least two major climate initiatives that are in this $3.5 trillion reconciliation package moving through Congress right now if we want to have any chance of mitigating our climate crisis. It is, he says, our last chance. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Let's dance. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So as you likely know by now, we've now got two major, I would say, landmark, once-in-a-generation infrastructure bills working their way through the U.S. Congress on a parallel two-track course. 
House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that neither will be brought to the House floor for a vote until both are fully approved by the U.S. Senate. One bill, the smaller of the two, is actually still fairly large. It's the $1.2 trillion bipartisan so-called hard infrastructure package for roads and bridges and new lead-free water lines and, yes, expansion of our electrical system and even money to build out the electrical vehicle charging network. That one was bipartisan. It passed with 19 Republican votes and all of the Democrats to overcome what could have been a GOP Senate filibuster. Against all odds, Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda is actually still on track to happen, even if there are many minds in the field to work around over the next several weeks toward passage of the entire package sometime next month. The second of the two packages, structured to be adopted together as one, or potentially not at all, is the much more expansive $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill that can be adopted in the Senate with a simple majority vote, as long as all 50 senators who caucus with the Democrats vote for it. That may not be an easy feat, given that the Democratic caucus stretches from West Virginia's Joe Manchin on the conservative right to Vermont's Bernie Sanders on the progressive left. The broad array of Democrats in the U.S. House are uh, no easier to wrangle onto the same page in that chamber either. The blueprint passed by the Senate for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package includes major expansions of Medicare, the Affordable Care Act, child care, free tuition for pre-K and community college, among other things. And yes, finally, major climate change initiatives that my guest argues are not only our best chance, but almost certainly our last chance for at least a decade to see real substantive climate action to truly bend the curve of the fossil fuel burning greenhouse gas emission nightmare that has been burning up and, and flooding our nations of the world uh, this summer on a horrifyingly daily basis and which has placed into very stark terms by the new U.N. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's dire new assessment, which serves as a siren warning that world leaders must immediately curb our use of fossil fuels or face unstoppable civilization-threatening warming, which the U.N. Secretary General described with the report's release as a, quote, code red for humanity. Not that more than 30 years of similar warnings from the IPCC has lit the necessary proverbial fire, if you'll forgive the analogy, under U.S. lawmakers, but now writes David Roberts, we finally have a chance to make a real change here in the U.S. that could have a real impact on our civilization-crushing carbon output. And, as he takes pains to explain, it may be the very last chance before it is too late. Writing in his Volts newsletter, the longtime energy and climate journalist reports, with unusual directness, I should add, this is it, folks. 
The home stretch. It's time to pay attention. Call your members of Congress and mobilize your networks. Congress is working on what is likely to be its last big shot at climate change policy for a decade or more, he writes. If things go well, the legislation will include a clean energy standard and clean energy tax credits, which together, he says, would revolutionize the U.S. electricity system. If things don't go well, there will be no substantial climate legislation for many years to come. That's the only question being decided, he says. Will we get a clean energy standard and tax credits or will we get nothing that will tackle fossil fuels this decade? That's the binary. It's time to focus, he says. He adds, looking around, it doesn't seem like clean energy supporters, climate hawks, or the left more broadly really get that yet. So let's talk about why this is such an important moment and what's at stake. Okay, let's. David Roberts has written for many, many years about politics, climate, and energy and the confluence thereof, long before many of us even understood there was such a critical confluence. After writing for years for Vox.com and Grist.com, before that he now publishes his own newsletter called Volts, which you can and should sign up for at volts.wtf. Yep, that's what it is. He's also contributed or been featured in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Huffington Post, Outside Magazine, Wired, and many others too numerous to mention. Oh, Mr. Roberts, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. So glad to be here, Brad. So glad to have you here. Uh, like I said, you were very direct in this newsletter, much more than you usually are, about the importance of this moment. But you, you're, you note that the smaller uh, $1.2 trillion bipartisan package that has already been passed by the Senate, it awaits uh, a vote in the House, though Pelosi has said they must take action on the larger one before either of them gets a vote. Uh, but that smaller bill... Uh, David, actually does contain, as you described, decent chunks of money for things that will indirectly help clean energy. Very quickly, what do you see in that package that climate folks should be, uh, if not celebrating, then at least encouraged by? Sure. There's a, a good chunk of money. The main thing, to me at least, is a, there's a good chunk of money for transmission, long-distance uh, transmission, which is a key sort of piece of the puzzle to decarbonizing the grid power transmission been, you're talking about yes electricity mm -hmm. transmission so big long distance high voltage power lines mm -hmm. you know are we sort of legendarily need lots more and they're very difficult to build uh, among other things because they're difficult to finance so this would help there uh there's and, a lot and, of money let me let me just jump in why is that uh, so important to have the long distance transmission lines that you reference there well a bunch of reasons, but the, the basic reason is that if we're going to shift the grid to renewable energy, mm -hmm. the renewable energy is not located next to uh, load, next to where it's needed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of out in the desert, mm -hmm. or it's way up in the sort of depopulated upper Midwest. Mm -hmm. So if we want to get it to where it needs to be consumed, we need to build lots of big, long transmission lines. So that's when, the, <clears> that's when the root of it. When we live out here in California, we're near the desert. We see all of the sunshine. We seem, you know, it seems like, oh man, there's plenty of uh, sunlight to generate plenty of energy. There is, but if we can't deliver it long enough distances to the places where it is needed, it doesn't do us a lot of good. And what you're saying is our current grid does not allow for that as as it's currently built. 
Yes, we can't get the energy where it's needed. I mean, even in California, in Southern California, you know, there'll be these times when the sun goes down mm-hmm. and, and usage is ramping up mm-hmm. and you would like to have something clean to jump in there. Mm-hmm. Right now it's natural gas that's coming online. Mm-hmm. There's all these dams up north in, in Canada and in Washington. Uh, there's all this clean hydropower. Mm-hmm. It just can't get down to Southern California when it's needed. So. Uh, almost every area of the country, in some way or another, is congested and needs more power lines to move clean power around. Gotcha. And that's in the uh, in the smaller of these two bills, which a lot of people sort of say, "Oh, it's a it's a slim bill. There's not much there." That's kind of huge. If, uh, if I mean, it's pretty big. It's yeah. not nearly as much money as transmission people want, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more for transmission being discussed for the reconciliation bill. But mm-hmm. it is something, and there's lots of money in the bipartisan bill for. Uh, clean energy demonstration projects mm-hmm. for R&D, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot of kind of what I would characterize as side dishes. A lot of okay. important side dishes, but it lacks the entree. I see. All right. Well, as to the entree, as you point out, because that, that smaller bill is not really a climate bill, and <clears throat> you say it lacks anything that will directly confront fossil fuels in the coming decades. The larger $3.5 trillion bill actually does include at least two central provisions that can change our national course on the use of fossil fuels, as you describe, at least in the production of electricity specifically, the creation of a clean energy standard and clean energy tax credits. Before you explain what those are and why they're so critical here, how much of our total greenhouse gas emissions footprint actually comes from electricity uh, or electricity generation in the U.S.? Well, this is really, really crucial to understand. Right now, it's about a third. Roughly a third of our emissions come from electricity. But the whole plan for decarbonization is to move transportation, which right now runs on gasoline and diesel, Mm -hmm. to move that over to electricity. Mm -hmm. And to move buildings. Right now, buildings are heated and cooled largely with fossil fuels, mainly natural gas, to move that over to electricity. So if you move the other two big chunks of emissions over onto the electricity grid, then you see, oh, having a clean electricity grid is the core strategy for decarbonization. It's Mm -hmm. not just one sector. This is the sector that's going to clean up all the other sectors. So Mm -hmm. there's nothing more important for short-term immediate decarbonization than cleaning up the electrical grid. It is the core of the strategy. Gotcha. And that's sort of your uh, electrify everything yeah, strategy right. that you have coined in your uh, in your Volts newsletter. All right. So in layman's exactly. terms, uh, for those who may not subscribe to your excellent newsletter, what exactly... How dare they? I know. I agree. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> what exactly is... A clean energy standard, uh, as you hope to see it established in this uh, reconciliation, and how would clean energy tax credits uh, actually uh, work together with that? Sure. So um, a bunch of states, I think it's over 30 states now, have something called um, a renewable portfolio standard, which is just um, a regulation that requires the state's utilities to steadily increase the amount of zero-carbon electricity Mm -hmm. that they have on the grid. So these are very well-established state-level policies. It's it's arguably been the policy that's done the most to decarbonize the U.S. electricity grid out of any policy. So the idea is just to take that national, to make it a national policy that all the nation's utilities Mm -hmm. have to steadily increase their proportion 
of zero carbon energy. Mm-hmm. The the wrinkle here is <laughs> at the state level, you can just make that a regulation, a, a regulatory standard right. that utilities have to meet. But of course, um, those who have been following the, the <laughs> reconciliation process know that when it comes to budget reconciliation, you can't do a straight-up regulation. It has to be budget-relevant. It mm-hmm. basically has to spend, it has to involve federal revenue, mm-hmm. basically, the outlay or collection of federal revenue. So what um, a bunch of clever people have been working on over mm-hmm. the last few weeks is, how can you translate a regulatory standard into something that looks budgetary, right. into something that looks like spending and collecting money? So what they've done is, rather than a regulatory standard requiring utilities to boost um, re- um, clean energy, they're going to have a payment program that basically pays utilities to do it and fines utilities that don't do it. Uh-huh. So it's, it's sort of been translated into reconciliation-friendly terms. And now it's called, rather than a clean energy standard, it's called a clean energy payment program, CEPP. Uh-huh. So the, 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 the end result is the same. The end result mm-hmm. will be the same. To to decarbonize the U.S. electricity grid 80% by 2030, which is a huge, that just means massive, massive, quick action over the next decade to drive fossil fuels off the grid and push clean energy onto the grid. Uh, the one, one other wrinkle which people might be interested in is uh, at the state level, they're often called renewable portfolio standards and mm-hmm. specifically target renewable energy. Yeah. The clean energy Standard at the national level will be somewhat more broad. It will also allow nuclear power oh, yeah. to qualify. Yeah. It will allow um, <laughs> natural gas power plants with carbon capture and sequestration to qualify. So it's a very broad Catholic, um, small C Catholic um, uh-huh. version of clean energy. I think in practice, you, you know, the, a lot of Greens are worried about that. They're worried they don't like carbon capture, they don't like nuclear, whatever. And we don't have to get into those arguments, mm-hmm. but I think that the thing to keep in mind is renewables are the cheapest form of clean energy. And the overwhelming effect, every analyst will tell you, mm-hmm. is if we pass this policy, is going to be a giant surge of renewable energy projects. Yep. So that's on that's the demand pull side. That's to pull um, um, new clean energy onto the grid. Mm-hmm. On the push, push side, mm-hmm. you have the clean energy tax credits. And, and these are also have been around for a long time. There's a investment tax credit and a production tax credit for um, for solar and wind, respectively. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is in the reconciliation bill, those would be boosted, they would be extended um, uh, farther because they're set to twilight, they're set to, to zero out soon. They would be extended, and tax credits would also be extended to other clean energy um, stuff like storage, energy storage, and notably transmission. Mm-hmm. So it would be a, a, a broader suite of clean energy tax credits. And that's the push, mm-hmm. right? That's the, that pushes new clean energy, and the, and the demand from utilities pulls clean energy. So you have gotcha. the push and the pull, and the result will be um, a massive surge of clean energy onto the grid over the next decade. And that is the sine qua non of good climate policy. Mm. The problem with the moderates, and the centrists, or whatever you want to call them these days, the mm-hmm. mansions of the world is, yeah. they, want to, they want to do everything but that, right? Because in the end, they don't really want fossil fuels driven off the grid because they like fossil fuels. Yeah. So, so they like, oh, yeah. R&D, that sounds good. Like some transmission, that'll be good. Oh, electric vehicles, we can live with those. But the main thing, 
is driving fossil fuels off the electricity grid quickly over the next decade, and the clean energy standard or the clean energy payment program is the only policy on the table that's going to directly do that. And we'll get to Joe Manchin in a second, but David Roberts okay. uh, does uh, uh, b- both of the things you described, there, the clean energy tax credits, that seems a little bit more clear. As far as the uh, the way they're coming up with this um, uh, clean energy standard, the clean energy payment program, do we know, will that pass muster with the uh, Senate parliamentarian to be included in a budget reconciliation bill? Is there, is there any question about that at this point? I mean, this, like, mysterious sorceress in a castle yes. who holds our fate in our hands, there's always a question about it because nobody has any idea <laughs> what the criteria are. So, you know, people are sacrificing goats and chanting, and who knows what's required. Like, <laughs> right. the, people, the, the people I talk to who are involved in creating this program are very confident that it can pass muster. Good from the parla- parliamentarian. I know clean energy tax credits can. The payment program is a little bit more uh, of a question, yeah. but it's pretty straightforwardly budget relevant at this point. So so I have high confidence okay. from talking to people involved that it will get by. But of course, there's always a chance that like, you know, she she wakes up with a, you know, backache and is grumpy oh. and decides, no, oh. the world's doomed. So, oh. <laughs> well, that's true of all these policies. True, but but I think I think it's got really good chances. And and now you go to great lengths, uh, frankly, in, in this piece, David, and frankly, more directly than I have ever seen you before. To note that this is it. This is the last chance and uh, the best chance, but also the last chance to really develop substantive climate legislation that can really have an effect at pushing us toward the net zero carbon emissions that scientists say we must accomplish at least by 2050 to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of our climate emergency, but that a lot of green folks don't yet seem to understand that. Is there still a push, you know, from various climate hawks and so forth for different pathways in this bill, like cap and trade or cap and dividend, carbon taxes and so forth? I mean, everybody, this is the thing about the factions of the climate movement. They all have their kind of favorite policies and strategies that mm-hmm. they've been pushing. There's a whole faction of people that are pushing for cap and dividend, and there's a whole faction of people pushing for a carbon tax, and then there's a whole faction on the left that's really into shutting down pipelines and prohibiting fossil fuel production. Mm-hmm. And just just putting aside the merits of all those, this is what I tried to do in the post. I was like, yeah. just put aside the merits of all those. They're not on the table right now. They are not going to get into the budget reconciliation bill. There is a set of policies that are on the table that may or may not get in, and they're and they're getting in is not a sure thing. Manchin right. is going to be trying to trim this thing. Yeah. So, so my plea, my plea to the climate community was just go ahead, keep your policy preferences, keep your political preferences, but just know that right now it's a binary. These things are going to get in this bill or they aren't. Mm. There's not some other climate policy waiting in the wings that might get in this bill. There's no climate, there's no carbon tax going to get in this bill. There's no, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So yeah. I'm not asking anyone to give up their preferences. Just suspend them maybe <laughs> okay. for a month and focus on getting this thing that might actually happen to happen because it's going to be, as, as you say, as I said, the last chance for a decade, probably, for anything big at the federal level to happen. So it's just, 
Yeah. You know, the, the left is always like herding cats, yeah. but it's just, I just wish this one time, everybody drop your other stuff and focus on this thing that might actually happen and rally behind it and raise your voice and at least let the mansions of the world know that they are not going to get away with trimming this stuff out of this bill without some outrage, mm-hmm. without public blowback. Like, they need to hear right now that people are committed to getting these policies in the reconciliation bill. If adopted, David, uh, which is, of course, still a very big if, as you know, as the, you know, the various wings of the Democratic Party and Congress are now, you know, already going to war uh, yep. Over all of this with themselves uh, over this, you know, once in a generation initiative that can be passed without any Republicans involved. Will this uh, clean energy uh, payment plan and the clean energy tax credits, uh, will it go far enough to answer the code red siren that was put out uh, this past week by the U.N.'s IPCC that immediate action is needed to avoid the worst impacts of climate change? Will this do the trick if it does, uh, if, if those two initiatives do go through? I mean, no, uh, no. <laughs> there is no, there is no policy on the table in any country in the world that fits that description. Nobody is doing, I mean, if you read the IPCC bill, the report and you realize what needs to happen, it's just radical. It's radical beyond mm-hmm. what politics is prepared for yep. anywhere in the world. And that's true here, too. So, no, passing these two policies will not finish the job, will not get us where we need to go. But it is vastly, vastly better than the status quo and vastly better than anything that's been up for a vote as mm-hmm. long as I've been following them. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, all solutions are partial. All solutions are a step, and there's always a next step. But absolutely, this is, um, I will say that this is a better start than I would have envisioned or hoped for from Democrats if they actually do it. I mean, it's like, it's the best that U.S. politics is going to be able to cough up. So, like, this whole idea, you know, I've got all these lefties out there. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get frustrated, but like, yeah. oh, this isn't enough. Biden's, you know, selling out. It's not enough. It's just like, can we just put all that stuff aside for a while? Yes, it's partial. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's not enough. Yes, it's the best Democrats can do right now. But it's good, and it's important, and it's on the table, and it might happen. So just for the next month or two, while this thing gets worked out, Raise your voice in support of it. And then, you know, when it passes or doesn't pass, feel free to go right back to bashing on Democrats. That's fine. (laughs) Like, it's not enough. We need more. That's fine. But, like, can we just do what we can do? Well, uh, speaking of bashing on Democrats, you know, as usual, much of this comes down to West Virginia's Democrat Joe Manchin, as you've referenced a couple of times. He's got the power all by himself, really, to pretty much kill anything that all of the rest of the Democratic caucus comes up with. He's already said he's not in favor of anything that hastens the demise of fossil fuels, I think. Uh, And, uh, though it is rarely noted, by the way, Manchin, who who represents coal country in West Virginia, he actually still has a huge personal stake in the coal industry. He's passed uh, his, his, I think it's a coal services-related firm, down to his son, but the family makes millions from it, I think, every year. Is it reasonable 
to even imagine that Ma- Manchin at this point will support anything that further hastens the death of the already dying coal industry, David? Well, who knows <laughs> what goes on in that guy's head. <laughs> and honestly, if you follow his statements from day to day, yeah. it's, it doesn't appear like there are any sort of foundational principles involved like the guy just blows this way and that based on who he talked to on his houseboat most recently so he's fickle that's the terrifying thing is he's just fickle and nobody knows what the hell he's thinking but but to take a step back i think it's really important for everyone to realize that we're in a really i mean we're in a really unique situation here politically I, i somebody should describe it in game game theory terms i don't know i don't know exactly mm-hmm. how you do that but but basically we're in a situation where all it all passes or none of it passes mm-hmm. so and and for it all to pass requires almost total unanimity from democrats in both the house and the senate so we're in a situation where every democrat in the senate has just as much power as mansion over this Every single one of them could single-handedly sink it. Yep. Every single one of them. Yeah. And in the House, like, yes, you have the centrists squawking about the deficit and squawking about how high the, the bill is, but you also have a very united and extremely um, vocal uh, group of progressives who are saying, we're not going to vote for this thing if you take all the good stuff out of it. Mm-hmm. So they can sink it. The centrist can sink it. Any single senator can <laughs> yes. sink it. Any Democrat can sink it. But the problem is, there's no partially sinking it. There's no just taking out what you don't like and leaving the rest. If anybody sinks it, the whole thing goes down. Yeah. So the stakes are enormous. Yeah. So if, if, you know, if Manchin really wants to put his foot down and say no to this, and the whole thing goes down, does Manchin want to go down in history as the guy who's single-handedly responsible for a once-in-a-generation chance for Democrats to do things, to flame out in complete failure? Does he want to be responsible for that? Do the centrists in the House want to be responsible for that? Do progressives in the House want to be responsible for that? So in a sense, like, everyone can sink it, but everyone also has an enormous stake in it passing. So it's just incredibly tense and fraught, but I think I think that Democrats in Congress, for once, understand that they sink or swim together on this. That if it goes down, voters are not going to be like, oh, Democrats were a total failure, but thank God Joe Centrist in my district (laughs) didn't spend too much money. Like, I'm going to vote for him again. You know, like, if Democrats fail, they all fail, and they're going to get crushed in 2022 i think they all know that so they all have the power to sink it but they all know it desperately needs to get through and they so they're gonna have to come they're gonna have to work these things out like they're gonna have to come to some sort of agreement you know like mansion and sanders are gonna have to find a bill that they can both sign mansion and uh, you know cinema Mm -hmm is going to have to find a bill she can sign. I don't think even she wants to be responsible for the whole Democratic agenda going down, including her precious, beloved 
bipartisan infrastructure bill because that would that, that would, would go down too. too. Yeah. So it all sinks or swims together, and it's it's a, I've never it's a unique situation in my in my lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it really hard. it really is. It's incredible, which is one of the reasons why I've said this will be such a remarkable uh, feat and a, a remarkable achievement. And I'm not in the uh, in the business of you know praising Democratic presidents, but boy, if Biden can pull this off, can walk through all of these minefields you have described and passes both of these initiatives to a certain extent, it will be an extraordinary achievement on par, I think, with, uh, you know, FDR's New Deal and, and uh, the Great Society and so forth. We will see. I really cannot agree off. more. He would he would he, his his legacy would dwarf Obama's. Yeah, it would dwarf. I mean, yeah. if, if 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 Biden pulls this off and both the infrastructure bipartisan infrastructure bill passed and a reconciliation bill, that's anything close to what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, they're talking about three point five trillion. If it's yep. two point nine, if it's two point seven, whatever. If he gets both those bills yep. through and passed, it will utterly vindicate everything about his run, mm-hmm. his candidacy, his pre- his presentation, his sort of his sort of. Um, um, you know, gestures towards moderation and, mm-hmm. and, and civility and all the stuff that the left hated. The left hated <laughs> it all along. Mm-hmm. But if he pulls this off, yep. it will absolutely vindicate every single step Still. of it. And I will and I will be out in public eating all the necessary crow. Yes. I will I will be out in public saying I was way wrong about this and he absolutely pulled this off. I mean I'm gonna praise yeah. him to the heavens if it if it happens. But but it's far from a sure thing. Yes, it is far from a sure thing. Uh, Still a lot of ifs, but yes, I'm right there with you. This could be amazing. Uh, By the way, as a side note, I think we also could still see uh, uh, voting rights legislation uh, also pulled off. But we will see. Lastly, David Roberts, uh, you include an an easy link uh, via our friend uh, Dr. Leah Stokes uh, for folks to fire up their cell phones to take three minutes to call their senators. And I will link to that uh, when we post today's show. Uh, But if you don't live in Mansions, West Virginia, or even Kirsten Sinema's Arizona, how important is it to, uh, to talk to your senators about this? As you say, this is it. Everything is on the line uh, for these two policies, and and what should they tell their senators when they do call? Yeah, I mean, even senators who are on the right side of this need to know that there's support for it, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, calling your lawmaker matters. This is something I hear from Senate offices, from House offices all the time, like the big email campaigns, eh, the letters, eh, but when people take the time to call, it gets collated and marked down, and the senator hears about it. It matters, so you, they need to hear that people um, that there is a, a public appetite specifically for the climate provisions to get okay. through in the thing, and not just call your legislators, but just talk about it. Like this is crunch time. Everybody needs to be talking about it and getting their fellow Democrats fired up. Like so, this is the time to fall into formation. Prime- to, to, to quote Beyonce, it's time to, to fall into formation and make this thing happen. Like, we can resume fighting like a bag full of cats in a couple of months, <laughs> but just for a few months, we need to be coordinated and speaking in a single voice. So if we tell them we, we support climate provisions, climate actions in that reconciliation bill, that's the thing they need to hear. Yes, specifically the clean energy 
standard. Like that's that's the that's the core. Of the it. clean energy standards. Excellent. Very good, David Roberts. Uh, I will point folks as usual towards your uh, excellent newsletter that they should all sign up with. Volts WTF is where you can do that. And of course, you can also find David on the Twitters, and you should follow him there at Dr. Volts which we refer to as Dr. Volts. David Roberts, always great speaking with you, my friend. Look forward to doing it again in the near future. Hopefully we won't play Billy Joel's We All Go Down Together as our theme music. Thanks, brother. Right. Great being on. Thanks, Brad. You bet. Okay, quick break. And uh, we. by the way, the phone number just for Congress, for your senator or your congressperson, is uh, 202-224-3121. 202-224-3121. If you want to tell them that you really want them to support the clean energy standard in the new $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Yes, and they really do want to hear from you. Oh, do they? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. All right, some of them do. Anyway. No, all it, of them should. It, yeah, it's not up to them. 202-224-3121. We'll be back with our closing few minutes here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Are you trying to say something? Are you trying no. to tell me something, Desi Doyle? I am not. I'm saying either we all do this together or none of it happens. Oh, we're so screwed. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from brandblog.com with Desi Doyle here for our closing few minutes. Uh, it's a real question, you know. There's a lot that the Democrats are going to have to come together on, not just, you know, beyond climate, uh, to pull off this two-track plan that would be, as uh, David Roberts uh, described, just extraordinary, oh, yes. an extraordinary achievement. <laughs> Can they do it? Uh, specifically, you know the, uh, the climate movement as well as anyone, which is a very disparate movement. Uh, can they come together to rally behind what uh, David Roberts is talking about here for a clean energy standard and for clean energy tax credits to, you know, try to save the world. I think so. I think that once it comes down to crunch time, uh, that uh, people are start going to start to recognize that this may be it, as David Roberts says, for the next decade or so. And the reason why that is, is because of the 2022 midterm elections that are coming up, when usually the power, the, the party that holds the White House usually loses control of at least the House, if not also the Senate. So in this case, in order to have this kind of action stay, it means that uh, Democrats have to get their stuff together now, <laughs> and they have to also mobilize voters in 2022 to prevent the Republicans from taking over and dismantling Yes, the, but the question is, do the climate people understand that? Do enough? I hope, you know, I, I know many of them read David Roberts. Uh, he's, I think, well-revered within the movement. At least I hope he is. So they uh, read his work. They understand what he's calling for here and what he's trying to highlight yeah, there are other things that might work better. And as he says, you know, continue to push for those things. But right now, central to us having any hope are those two points 
that Joe Biden has already said has put on his menu of options. The other stuff, uh, you know, uh, cap and trade or carbon tax or whatever, that is not on the menu right now. That is not right. going to happen in this package. Right. So I'm just hoping the climate folks understand that and that they pull together and, you know, what did he call them, a bag of cats? They can start, go back to fighting like a bag full of cats yeah. after this part is done. They yeah. need to keep it together, get it together, and mobilize starting now for getting this through Congress because this is, it's really hard to understand. I think you guys both did a good job of talking about how important and crucial this particular point is. This is the inflection point. This is where the uh, rubber hits the road. And if you really do believe that we need to have climate action, which any sane person that understands anything about climate <laughs> science and all of the extreme weather disasters that we are already seeing will know, this is the time. We are screwed. <laughs> no, actually, I'm, I'm quite optimistic in, in this, as I have been. You know, on on this uh, package, uh, the uh, both of the the bipartisan package and the reconciliation package, it, I have felt optimistic about this. I continue to feel optimistic about this. I continue to feel, as I said, optimistic about even voting rights. That's how optimistic I am. But it requires public pressure. Congress uh, can be reached at 202-224-3121. I can be reached via email. <laughs> I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Uh, you can also find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am the bradblog at both places. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other show we have ever done, you can download it for free at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by listeners like you. By you, not like you, actually you. <laughs> you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to my guest today, David Roberts of Volts.WTF. Is that it, Desi Doyen? I think that's it. Has Donald Trump become president again today? No, thank God. So far, so good. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>